SQL Down Under is a podcast for professionals working in the SQL Server community. SQL Server is a trademark of Microsoft Corporation. Opinions expressed during the podcast are individual opinions and may not reflect the opinions of SQL Down Under or of Microsoft Corporation. Introducing show number 35 with guest Roger Doherty. Our guest today is Roger Doherty. Roger is a senior technical evangelist with the developer and platform evangelism group at Microsoft. Welcome, Roger. Thanks, Greg. As we do with everyone, I'll get you to describe how on earth did you ever get involved with SQL Server in the first place? And I gather, I suppose, even the uh, how you got involved with Microsoft. I gather it's a fair while. We have our local ISV uh, evangelist, Shook Chan, and uh, Shook was saying he'd known you a very long time as well. Yeah, I've been with the company for about 18 years, and most of that career has been with SQL Server. Um, I started back in 91, but my experience with SQL Server started before that with, with Sybase. Um, I was a uh, consultant for them right out of college, Okay. being sent to uh, various odd corners of the earth working on Sybase installations and uh, jumped at the opportunity to come to work for Upstart Microsoft in 91 yes. um, when they announced that they were going to uh, port SQL Server over to the OS2 platform and um, kind of uh, starting off the client-server revolution in the PC database server market. Yeah. So um, that was my start, and I, like I said, I've been... Mostly focused on SQL in various different roles over that time. Um, developer, uh, sales, uh, evangelism, um, and here we are today. We are indeed. And so with SQL Server 2008, the, the main topic for the day, uh, we'll maybe wander one by one just through the things that you think uh, developers are going to find most of interest in the product. Sure, sure. Um, I mean, when you're talking about developers and, and how they, you know, and why they might be interested in uh, the database engine itself from a development perspective, there's there's quite a lot of different ways that you can slice and dice that. I guess I would first say that um, I like to take an expansive view of, of who, who developers are. Yes. Um, since, you know, today people tend to have to wear a lot of hats. Um, so in the past, you might have had the luxury of saying that you were a database developer versus an application developer versus a BI developer. And uh, I think, uh, you know, increasingly we're seeing, you know, uh, developers really have to have expertise and skills across all of those areas. So, yeah. um, you know, I'll kind of set things up by saying that. Uh, first off, um, and you know probably the easiest place to start when you're talking about uh, developer functionality in SQL Server 2008 and things that are of interest to developers is to start right with the database engine itself. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been um, some moderate um, enhancements uh, from a programmability perspective, and there's been some pretty extensive enhancements from a data type 
perspective in the product. So um, maybe it will kind of hit the easy ones first. Yeah. Um, from a uh, from a programmability perspective, <clears throat> I'm sure most people who have written uh, Transact SQL code uh, have run into the problem of uh, the inability to sort of pass around array, arrays um, yeah. as parameters into things like stored procedures. Um, yeah, the common request that comes up is things like people say, yeah, I want to pass an invoice into right. the procedure. Yeah. Right. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, the just the simple ability to pass a two-dimensional, you know, row set, if you will, into as a parameter to a stored procedure would be extremely helpful. Um, there's been a lot of interesting workarounds to that over the years, and the introduction of the XML data type, you know, solved a lot of those problems for people who didn't mind mucking around with XML, but I think people were still looking for something that was slightly easier and, and simpler. So what we've done is we've taken the concept of a, of a table variable and we've extended that so that you can um, declare variables of type table and parameters of type table and pass them around uh, as parameters into, into your stored procedures, um, obviously being read-only. It's probably uh, worth noting the, the other advantage of that, I suppose, is the strong typing as opposed to passing in XML where basically it's Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So if the, you know, if the, uh, if the input table doesn't match the correct definition, you'll, you'll get a, you'll get an error message or parameter mismatch. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's helpful as opposed to having to process through or grind through the, the entire XML instance to figure out that, you know, something might be wrong. Yeah. Or having to fire up a parser um, and incur, uh, you know, parsing and validation CPU overhead associated with that. So um, it is pretty high performance and pretty straightforward. But then again, it's also pretty simple. Like I said, two-dimensional data structure. Yeah, indeed. Um, so that that kind of is a, a nice thing that I, people have been asking for for quite some time, uh, and tends to be one of the first things that we talk about from a, a simple you know, developer enhancement at the engine level. Um, another interesting enhancement is uh, the idea of uh, row constructors. Yeah. Um, and really, this is just the ability uh, to kind of fully specify a, a row of data in directly in Transact SQL syntax um, uh, by just basically bounding them in um, curly braces, right? Yeah. Um, so rather than having to code, for example, three insert statements uh, with three separate values clauses, you could, for example, have one insert statement with a single value, clauses and, uh, value clause and then have three row instances in there to, to insert three rows. Um, the idea I, I being suppose it's worth mentioning also that that's also then a single atomic operation rather than three separate inserts as well. Yeah, yeah. There's, you know, obvious benefits from a round-tripping perspective, um, you know, but in, it's a little syntactically tighter. It could make for a little bit more readable code, less yeah. verbose code um, at the script level. So it's a nice, I think, syntactical enhancement and something I think people will appreciate and kind of yeah. make for a little bit tighter, tighter coding convention. Actually, someone the other day on one of the groups was also saying, look, that would lend itself well to auto-generated code, but they're also wondering if the, what the current restriction is on the total size of a T-SQL statement and uh, wondering if there's any, if you know if there's any practical limit to the size of that currently. 
Um, there, it's pretty interesting. The uh, those maximums we used to publish in a kind of an appendix at the end yeah. of our books online. Uh, that went away as of the SQL Server 2005 uh, generation. Uh, mm. I've been wishing that it come back ever since because <laughs> oh, it really yeah. helps. And yeah, it's handy when you're filling out RFPs and such um, to yeah. at least know what the technical maximum is for things. Um, I would have to investigate that a little bit further to know. Yeah, the same here. It, it just occurred to me that that was something that came up. Yeah, it's a sort of, um, it's just a different approach instead of lots and lots of inserts to suddenly generating something that could go in all at once like that. But yeah, it was just a, <laughs> you could run into the size of a statement eventually. Yeah, I mean, whether or not you want to, you know, permutate that out to a, you know, two terabyte insert statement, <laughs> exactly. might, that might be stretching <laughs> the capabilities a bit. Indeed. <laughs> Um, so, so that's another nice, nice little widget and feature from a Transact SQL programmability perspective. It's nice. Another thing, one of my personal favorites is the ability to initialize a vari- uh, variable directly in the declare statement. Yeah. Making for a little bit more uh, concise coding. Um, I've always uh, uh, wanted to do that in my previous code and couldn't have had to write the declare statement in a separate set statement further yeah. down to actually initialize a variable. Yeah. Um, so that's a nice feature. Um, and, one, one, uh, wish I wish, one which I wish had got in that uh, uh, hopefully still is high on the list is being able to declare a variable as the same type as a column. Um, that, that's one that I'd really, really love to see appear in some time in the future. The, uh, is a, I find endlessly um, in some other languages, uh, for example, Oracle, you can literally say declare at variable and you can say type of some particular mm-hmm. column, and uh, uh, be be really nice if that ever uh, sort of came in as well. I think that would be another uh, nice. So you would le- declare a variable as uh, as a, as a column in a particular table. Yeah, to say you the, would inherit the same type from that. Yes, exactly. Okay. I, I think that would greatly simplify the code and uh, just just me- and uh, for maintenance wise as well. So when it changes in the table, it would just automatically change in uh, anywhere that it had been used. But uh, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, but That's anyway, I'm, I'm just mentioning it because it's up on the Connect site and people should go out and vote for it. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. Go vote for uh, for Greg's favorite feature, right? <laughs> Indeed. Um, yeah, so so um, I guess the other thing would be uh, the concept of enumerators. Yeah. Um, you know, to kind of increment a variable, you can do plus equal and things of that nature. Which is, you know, something that's, you know, been around in other more modern programming languages for a while. Yes. Um, you know, and kind of, kind of new to T-SQL, but can make for, you know, a little bit more efficient code. Um, actually, and, how, you know, those, do you know how the parser yeah. gets on with the asterisk equals? Um, I'm, I'm just thinking in terms of the old join syntax. It's the, uh, uh-huh. so I'm wondering. I'm thinking that that probably has a lot to do with the compatibility level that you currently have your database set at as to whether or not it kind of wants to look at that as the old outer joint. Also, I think the parser is pretty intelligent as to where that's located. Is it in the body of a select statement or is it in, you know, something else, right? So um, I'm sure they've thought through that. Actually, uh, on a side note, a pretty extensive effort on backward compatibility in SQL Server 2008. Yeah. Um, you know, really want to do our absolute best not to break any applications yeah. um, that we move forward. So 
um, you know, any deprecations, um, any syntactical changes like that tend to get exposed through the database compatibility level so that yeah. if we did something in the syntax to break your uh, break your query or break your stored procedure, you can just dial the compatibility level of the database back to to your you know your release level, whether it's SQL seven or two thousand, um, and continue to run. Do you encourage people to pretty quickly move that back up to the current level, though? Yes, uh, we don't like to see people stay stuck on that for too long. Usually, mm -hmm. it's a, a stopgap measure just to get some initial testing in there, and hopefully, the coding changes aren't so huge that would prevent people from moving forward to the latest database compatibility level. So, yes, yeah. we definitely do encourage people to move forward as quickly as they can. Yeah, I find quite a few sites where I, I uh, go to use things like the newer DMVs and things like that and am not able to because when they've brought it in, they've just left it permanently at 8.0 uh, instead right. of it up to 9 for right. SQL. Right, right. Then, then you're... Then you're not too sure what's going to happen if you bump it up, right? And um, I think one thing that we're doing, which I would also kind of make a side note on, it's not necessarily directly related to new SQL Server 2008 uh, capabilities, but mm. we're trying to provide a better framework for people to test their applications for com potential compatibility issues when moving yeah. to a new release. So one thing we've been doing is... Um, uh, promoting the idea of um, kind of workload testing, yep. so capture a workload on your previous, uh, on, on you know on your current release, let's say it's SQL Server 2005, and then mm -hmm. replay that workload against SQL Server 2008 and check for any differences, differences in performance, differences in you know maybe certain queries failed, um, you know things of that nature. So. Um, you know, just running the upgrade advisor check to scan your instance isn't always enough, especially when you're dealing with dynamic SQL, right? You need yep. to be able to take a look at the batches that are being generated by the client application and analyze those for compatibility as well. And that, that workload or so-called playback testing is a very, very useful uh, way of doing that. So we'll be releasing... Um, uh, content tools and methodologies around SQL Server 2008 that allow people to self-test their app and probably a lot of Microsoft consultant types and uh, folks in the field will maybe even host some you know, upgrade lab style events where they kind of walk people through that type of testing. Actually, one thing that would be really quite interesting, it's just very topical, you mentioned replay, because uh, my wife May was actually uh, on site in New Zealand uh, mm -hmm. this weekend trying to replay SQL Server 2005 traces against, two, uh, sorry, 2000 against 2005. And, Is that what she does for entertainment? Yeah, <laughs> indeed. And uh, it's, it's amazing when you have a, uh, she, she hates me describing her as a geeky wife, but uh, anyway. <laughs> there you go. Uh, I think for most of her friends that would qualify as geeky, but uh, yes. <laughs> anyway. Yes. The, uh, the thing that Especially was the of... fact that she was doing it on a weekend is extra disturbing. <laughs> yes, or late at night, yeah. The, right. uh, but the thing actually that was quite complicated, uh, first up, was matching up all the database IDs between the different servers because they had a whole lot of cross-database queries. And yes. it did dawn on me that it would be really quite useful when you go to replay the trace to be able to say... Uh, on this replay, uh, database ID 8 is actually that database over there or something like that. Right, um, right. Because otherwise you, 
having the two environments and trying to match up all the database IDs exactly the same is actually yes, quite that has been a traditional kind of uh, gotcha in in replay uh, testing and what we've done to kind of rather than have them re-architect how database IDs work uh, we have instead uh, made our tools smart about you know preserving database IDs on you know systems that we're playing back against but yeah I've seen a lot of people get nipped by that one yeah I'm thinking it'd be nice if you could dynamically configure that as part of the replay to be able to say oh by yeah, the way yeah that'd be a nice profiler feature yeah. let's get let's vote for that one up on <laughs> I'll, I'll put that one up there as well good, yeah good and I think the other question I had that a lot of people ask is replaying cursor based code as to whether that really works properly now, because I know uh, it depends upon how complicated the cursors are. Um, yep. You know, cursors generate handles, and yeah. you know, handles are unique at execution time, right? Yep. So, um, in general, cursors don't replay very well. Yeah, and that's a current limitation of our our current kind of replay architecture that we use. Yeah, other other. Things you know that can affect replay, um, you know, uh, would include uh, blocking behaviors since we have to kind of serialize things. Uh, yeah. Occasionally, get into a blocking situation that you wouldn't get into in a in a real world application. But all those things aside, replay testing can be a very useful yeah. thing uh, to find uh, you know behavioral differences in how your application performs against the yeah. new release. Yeah, hugely important to be able to do that against new versions. Yeah, that's great. Um, in fact, I was so, surprised at all that it worked at all, so that's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, on, on that aside, you know, kind of getting back to um, to what we were originally talking about. Yep. Yeah, we got into a whole issue of compatibility levels, and <laughs> that sort of branched off into a whole topic of backward compatibility and you know, my main point is that you know we're working extremely hard not to break your app number one and number two we're doing a lot to try to provide very prescriptive guidance on you know how you actually go about doing your upgrade to avoid you know the the unfortunate scenario of, of upgrading and then finding out that you've got a problem after you've gone into production that's not something anybody wants to deal with Indeed. No, that's great. So um, I think that's a pretty good summary of most of the kind of, you know, syntactical uh, pieces of Transact SQL. Is there anything else you can remember, probably, Greg, that we haven't the talked only other, about? Any other one, whether it fits in that area or not, I suppose are just basic things like merge statement. Uh, but that's sure, yep, 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 yep. We did, we did forget to talk about that. Good point. Um, yeah, so so merge is a, a new operation that allows you to kind of combine um, an insert and an update into a single statement. So um, as you're you know moving rows into the other table, it will check for the existence of that row, and if it does exist, the appropriate columns get updated, and if it doesn't, uh, it gets inserted, and it can uh, allow you to perform you know those types of operations in a single pass instead of having to do multiple passes, which can have a pretty dramatic impact on performance. Yeah, indeed it can. And actually, one of the things that's quite quite powerful out of that is also the additions to the output clause um, so that you, you can literally get info back as to what occurred. Right, right. And the uh, auditing aspects of it are important because you need to kind of know what happened because your standard end rows affected doesn't quite cut it for that type of operation, <laughs> does it? 
In fact, one of the, again, that's an interesting one, that there's uh, uh, a lot of discussion come up on the news groups already about whether there should really be some way of getting separate totals for how many were inserted, how many were deleted, how many were updated or whatever. But the answer typically is that you can do an, uh, an output statement and then mm-hmm. literally get the answer from that sort of detail. Yes, and that is, that's why it's been instrumented that way. Yeah. The other thing I, I think uh, probably mentionable there is just about the composable SQL, um, the, the idea that literally in something like a merge or a statement that has an output, the fact that we can now treat that as a table and, and query from it as well. Right, right, right. So um, it kind of adds a new twist to the concept of dynamic SQL, doesn't it? Yes, <laughs> yeah. indeed. Yeah. So, yeah, so we can literally say select something from... And then have in, in parentheses, we can actually have the merge statement or an insert or a delete or something with an output clause and, uh, and alias that and then treat it like it's a table. Yeah, I think it's... And again, the, 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 the benefits of that, you know, can often mean that you, you don't have to create, you know, temporary data structures between stages, which, yeah. you know, the code will definitely be more complex if you use composable SQL constructs like that. However... The op, you know, it gives you an opportunity to optimize things in a way that maybe you didn't have before. Yeah, that's right. I, I think there's, there's incredible power in that. The, uh, and, and as you say, just being able to avoid endless things where people traditionally may have ended up using something like uh, temporary tables or yeah, yep. something yep. like that. It's always that. a trade-off between complexity of code and, and you know, efficient operation, right? So. Yep. I always think you have to look at that stuff pretty closely and ask yourself, okay, do I really need to use this more advanced construct because I have to worry about the uh, next bloke coming along who has to uh, debug my code? (laughs) And I suppose the other thing then is that then starts to lead us into new data types. Sure. That's the big kind of major uh, impact areas of... uh, of SQL Server 2008 from a developer perspective would be the addition of our new data types. So on a simple perspective, uh, we've got the new date and time types. And, um, you know, these are pretty simple and straightforward to talk about. Um, you know, first of all, we've fixed date time with uh, and, and added a new uh, data type called date time 2, which has... Um, much improved accuracy, I think, down to something like 100 nanoseconds or something like that. It is, yes. Which is uh, apparently more accurate than most CPUs. So now your (laughs) limitation of accuracy is the CPU, not your date-time type, right? Yeah, I think Um, the discussion there is that, um, yeah, most computer systems can't do much more than about 18 milliseconds, uh, 18.6 milliseconds. But the discussion usually is that sometimes, though, we're receiving data from real-time equipment or things that do have high precision, and so sure. we need to store them somehow in the database, and so right. that now gives us the ability to do that. Yep, we have, the, we have that level of accuracy now, and also, incidentally, with complete parity with the .NET framework, date-time type, and, it, and its associated accuracy. Um, so you no longer have that impedance mismatch between the two, which is very nice. Um, One thing I haven't tried yet that I got asked about this week as well is that in .NET code, where they don't have, say, a date and time data type and they have stored a date in a date time or a time in a date time, 
Right. Uh, just to wonder how that gets passed into a proc that's expecting a date or a time data type. You would just convert it to a string. Yeah, so you think a string will be the intermediate thing that they'll need to do to yep. get that across, yeah. Yep, that's how it's done. Do you think so. there's any chance that the equivalent types will get added into the framework? I strongly doubt that. Mm-hmm. Um, I really believe that uh, the, you know, the primitive data types in the dot, .NET framework data type, it would take an awful lot to convince them that they needed to do that. Yep. I think one of the reasons why it's been such a pain point on the SQL side is just, you know, simple migrations. Um, you know, a lot of people want to move to SQL Server, and if you're coming from a platform that has discrete date and time types and we don't have them here, then it makes that migration that much more difficult. Yeah. Right? I think, so I think it's also the, the whole idea of a magic date. I mean, date's not too bad because you can have a zero time and that yes. makes perfect sense, but time... Yes. Having first first nineteen hundred or something stored in there always right. be the potential to have some coding problem come out because there is this magic number uh, right. that's, that's stored as part of the data. Right, and I think that just offends people's uh, sense of uh, of, of uh, accuracy really when they're dealing with those. And I think date time two kind of addresses that as well with its range, where yeah. uh, its date range is really you know. Much more, uh, much less arbitrary than the one that we were dealing with. I think it starts the year, you know, uh, 01, if you will. Yeah, uh, does, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think date, dates get a little fuzzy back past the 1600s anyway. <laughs> so. Yes, indeed. They were kind of shifting things around a bit. So. Uh, actually, another comment that comes up there is, do you think there's ever an interest in storing uh, BC type dates? Um, I, I would, I could definitely see some applications that would benefit from that. I haven't heard people asking for that a lot. Uh, or, in fact, the the question normally comes up is, can I store a negative date time? And the and the answer is no currently. But you just sort of wonder that whether it might have been interesting to to have had uh, the potential to go backwards uh, for four or five thousand years. And yeah, so, but as you said, yeah. the uh, the calendaring systems get pretty fuzzy oh, at, yeah. <laughs> at a certain point. So doing meaningful calculations in terms of date diff operations and such get, get to be pretty challenging there. Yeah, uh, So uh, I think, you know, it's an interesting idea, but not, not something I've heard a strong demand for. No. And look, the number of people that would use it, I think, is still pretty limited. Uh, number. Well, there's probably some scientific... Yeah. And engineering applications for it as well, mm. um, uh, but uh, and, and historical, obviously. So I think uh, many of those start to deal in millennia and things though as well, which are right. not, not going right. to ten thousand exactly. years, no matter what you do, anyway. Yeah, so. Right, right. So uh, other other uh, other enhancements with dates and times. Uh, we also have a new date time offset uh, type, which is based upon date time too, but it also preserves the uh, the time zone as part of the uh, the value yep. so that uh, comparisons and calculations between different time zones are now meaningful and that's very very helpful for globalized applications in particular where you have to worry about time zone yeah. um, and um, so that's a pretty good summary of uh, what's happening with dates and times I think yep. that's good. And, um, and moving up the scale of complexity now from mm-hmm. those simple c- 
kind of scalar types, um, he probably deserves a little bit of a setup in terms of the extensibility uh, model that we're using to really take the traditional RDBMS uh, data type management functionality of, of SQL Server and extend it out to richer types. Um, yeah. And um, and that's where... Uh, actually, before I jump into that, there is another kind of simple type that has big storage implications. Everybody's familiar with uh, var binary max for storing blobs, right? Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, var binary max is, you know, can be used to store all kinds of, you know, binary information, video, pictures, etc. The problem is once your uh, average instance size gets rather large, you know, you're, you're storing a lot of that stuff in row with, with other relational data, and um, you know it tends to uh, not be very performant from a uh, from an I/O perspective. Have you got uh, a, a feeling as to where the sweet spot size-wise is there? I saw one graph that Dave Lane had where it, it tended to indicate some somewhere about one and a half meg or something like that. Where yeah, yeah, that's the sweet spot. The uh, uh, performance begins to degrade pretty dramatically when your average instance size of your blob data is, is you know larger than a megabyte. Yeah. Um, so um, traditionally, people have dealt with that by not storing their blobs in the database and storing them externally in the file system, and then storing you know pointers to those things, yeah. whether they were UNC names or whatever convention, or maybe even leveraging a third-party uh, you know image you know management retrieval system for doing yeah. that. Um, and that has obvious, you know, application development complexities associated with it and management complexities associated with it. Yeah. Um, so, uh, what we've yeah, done... Transactional consistency issues, I think, is the big one. That absolutely, and transactional consistency, right. How do you guarantee the same type of atomic transactional, you know, capabilities when uh, when the, the instance data is stored outside of your engine? Yeah. So... Um, what we've done in uh, SQL Server 2008 is added a new attribute to our binary max called file stream. And the way I like to describe it is that um, SQL Server kind of has a new storage engine capability. Um, everybody's familiar with the existing storage engine that, you know, where SQL Server takes some space away from the operating system and chunks it up into pages and extents and kind of manages that storage itself, right? It's no longer accessible to the operating system. Well, uh, SQL Server now has a new storage engine that uses the file system for persisting blob data, and we call that file stream. Um, and SQL Server can go out there, and instead of creating a data file or a file group, when you create a file stream file group, there's actually a folder that gets created out in the file system. And as you store your your blob instance data, you'll see some crazy hierarchical folders showing up underneath that and some gobbledygook file names getting created underneath that that have absolutely no relation to your uh, actual blob instance data. Yeah. And I say that's you know thoroughly to be expected. Would you expect to go in and examine your pages and extents and understand what you know what rows those uh uh correlate with or what you know invoices or customers they correlate with no yeah. you're expecting sql server to do uh, an efficient job of managing those things in your pages and extents and you're happy to allow sql server to do its own thing there right yeah well in the in the, uh, in the file stream type it's the same type of analogy 
as we're persisting these blob instances, SQL Server's going out there and making efficient use of NTFS as a storage vehicle for storing blob instances. And SQL Server completely manages the namespace. Um, it completely manages the storage, and it does so transactionally with transactional consistency, as you mentioned. Yep. Um, and the really interesting benefit is that when you read and write your blob instances, you now also have the option of using Win32 file streaming APIs to do that, which is really the kind of performance that people want when they're doing streaming um, of, of large blob data. Yeah. And I must admit, I used the sample that you and Zach had when uh, built yeah. some of the launch stuff and simplified some of the code for that. And it, it really wasn't very difficult to to get. No, it's not. It's not difficult uh, at all. It's right. it's a different paradigm and a bit of a brain shift. So if you write most of your T, you know, your code in T SQL, file streams going to look to be pretty arcane to you. Yeah. Um, but if you've ever done any kind of file stream programming in either Win32 or in managed code, um, you, it'll be, you know, pretty simple. Um, so what we've had to do is fake out uh, the Win32 file streaming APIs yeah. by allowing SQL Server to manage the namespace for those handles, for those file handles, right? Yeah. So SQL Server will, we've got some calls now in T-SQL where SQL Server will manufacture a, uh, a path that can be used to open a handle to the file. And like I said, SQL Server manages that namespace. It's, to, it, it, you know, the, 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 the path that is produced has no relation to an actual file or an actual location on disk. It's yep. simply a way that SQL Server can communicate back and forth with Win32 to produce a file handle for IO operations. Actually, that's raised a really good point as well. I, one of the things that surprised me when I first looked in those folders was that as I modified things, of course, I ended up with multiple copies of the same object. And, of mm -hmm. course, it then dawned on me, of course, that that is needed for transactional consistency. Sure. And, and just as account. in the, you know, in the storage engine, if we, you know, go delete some rows, you don't necessarily expect the SQL Server to go out there and zero out all that stuff, yep. right? It'll go out and clean it up when it needs to, right? Yeah. And it's the same thing with this. There's garbage collection operations that occur at different points in time, um, and, you know, particularly after transaction logs get truncated and things like that, um, where you know it'll free up some of that storage. Yeah. But uh, um, you know, kids don't the, try this at home. The, yeah, the, 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 the folders the, and the files that are managed by SQL Server are there. And I wouldn't mess with those any more than I would go start trying to mess with pages and extents in my no. MDF and LDF files. Yeah, I think the thing I was sort of coming to, though, is that that's another reason why it's important not to just go out and try and find the file and access it directly, is that you need SQL Server to tell you which file it is. Right, and what is... And which version of file it? file logically may <laughs> yeah. not wind up being a file physically on disk in a yep. file stream either. It might get split up. It might get, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So there, there is really uh, no, uh, it, it, you know, there is no reason and, and no uh, technical reason why you would want to, to access the file directly. You always want to go through SQL Server to get that file handle to open it up and to write to it. Yeah, that's great. And I suppose next one is the hierarchy, maybe moving up the tree? 
Yeah, moving up the tree, so I kind of set that up a little bit early. (laughs) Yeah, right. Um, We, in SQL Server 2005, I'm sure most people are aware that we did a major um, extension of of SQL Server by adding the, the, uh, and hosting the common language runtime for managed code um, in SQL Server 2005. And, And with that, sort of gave us the generic user-defined type capability where you could just kind of create your own uh, CLR types and, you know, serialize uh, and deserialize data into them, um, which made for a rudimentary, you know, uh, uh, type extension capability um, in, in the product. And we've basically leveraged that, that capability to add some new, um, richer types in SQL Server 2008. So it's a it's an example of how those fundamental architectural changes in 2005 are really paying off now in future editions of the product. Yeah. Um, so the first example of that is the one that you mentioned, which is Hierarchy ID. Um, and I, I like to describe Hierarchy ID as um, a nice alternative to using uh, common table expressions for, um, you know, uh, exploding um, natural hierarchies like organizational charts or you know reporting structures or bills of materials or things of that nature. Um, yeah, I find general ledger accounts and sub accounts and yeah, that, sure. uh, they're just anything that's naturally tree structured. Yep. Any kind of natural hierarchy, exactly. Um, and uh, when you're dealing with uh, common table expressions relationally, I mean, it it gets you know. Now, first of all, you have to learn how common table expressions operate, and there's only a, a few higher level, uh, higher order uh, beings on the planet that have uh, figured out how to do that. Um, uh, but secondly, you know the performance ramifications of kind of iterating through um, and recursively running those queries can be significant. Um, and you know, people have wanted for a long time the uh, a way to deal with natural hierarchies in a little bit more of a straightforward way. Yeah. So what we've done is we've created a new type called Hierarchy ID, and um, you know, at its base is it's just a a, bi- you know, a binary type um, that has you know uh, that's you know exposed through the common language runtime, which means you can manipulate it directly in Transact SQL. Um, or um, you can take the client libraries for working with the hierarchy ID and, and um, you know, reference them in client applications as well. So you can work with these things outside of the engine as well and manage code if you need to. Um, and the hierarchy ID basically gives you the ability to, um, you know, represent um, a node-level um, hierarchy for where this particular row happens to exist in, a, in an existing um, in an existing hierarchy. Um, there's an underlying binary representation which you can then um, cast back out as a string, and you know the root node. If you if you do cast it back out as a string, the root node shows up as uh, I guess a backslash. I think it is that says, okay, I'm I'm the beginning of this whole root. I have no parent. Yeah. And then um, we just simply number the nodes underneath it. So slash one is the first uh, is the first direct descendant of the parent node. Slash two is the second direct descendant of the parent node, and then so on and so on and so on all the way down. So you could have you know several different levels there, obviously. Yeah. Um, and then we've got methods for you know. Returning descendants uh, for finding parents 
for uh, manipulating the hierarchy at different levels. Um, and more interesting, I think, is the indexing abilities, where if you're going to do a, a depth-first search of a hierarchy, we support that natively already in our indexing strategy. Yeah. Um, so if you create an index on a hierarchy ID and you're doing a depth-first search, we'll do an index search for that, which is you know exciting, especially considering the performance ramifications of you know the type of uh, recursive querying that you would have to do previously to do this. Yeah, it wouldn't matter um, if you did a CTE or or temporary tables or whatever. It's it's a lot harder and a lot exactly. more exactly. Yeah. Um, and so uh, the the other type of search is what we would call a breadth search, breadth first search, where you want to get everything at a certain level. Yeah. And there, it's pretty straightforward. You just grab the level um, of every instance and and persist that as a computed column. Yep. And then you can create an index on both the hierarchy ID and the and the level of that of that particular instance in the hierarchy, and that will make it very easy for you to do breadth first searches. So you know, yep. give me all the managers at this you know at the fourth level of my organization, right? Yeah. That's a very efficient search as well. Um, the thing that I think most relational purists will you know. Uh, have a problem with is that there is no referential integrity that could be automatically maintained in this system. So all that has to be done at the application level. If you want to prune things around, prune nodes and move them around, you have to write code to do that stuff. It just doesn't happen automatically. Um, we don't cascade, you know, deletes of nodes and all that kind of stuff. So you have to take care to keep your um, hierarchy intact. In so you'll see most of the samples will uh, set up a full serializable uh, transaction isolation level when working with these hierarchies to make sure that uh, in a multi-user system that you're not uh, doing something that's going to step on somebody else's manipulation of the same hierarchy, if you will. Listen, that's probably a good point to just take a quick break, Roger, and we'll come back shortly. Great. As well as community resources such as this podcast, SQL Down Under offer mentoring services and both private and public training options. If you need to get your project back on track or if you need to get it off to a good start, why not give us a call? We have also recently introduced a series of online courses available in both Asia-Pacific and US-UK time zones. In particular... The first course that's offered in this series is Query Performance Tuning. You'll find details at www.sqldownunder.com. Welcome back from the break. So another thing I normally get people to do, Roger, is is, is there a life outside SQL Server? <laughs> yeah, there is definitely a life outside of SQL Server. Uh, I live in, uh, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the... Uh, the birthplace of the uh, the U.S., where yeah. we uh, declared independence against the British, and and where we drafted the uh, the U.S. Constitution. So we I live in right in the middle of the historical district there, and and enjoy enjoy living in that type of an environment. Um, most people don't consider the United States to have a lot of history in comparison to other parts of the world, but what history we do have is in Philadelphia. Yeah. So. 
<laughs> and, uh, well, compared to us, uh, I mean, we have sort of both. We have a, an Aboriginal history that goes back probably some of the oldest, I suppose, 40,000 years. But if you look at uh, sort of things where people have constructed uh, big, obvious things and so on, yeah, I mean, uh, the, every time I go to a European place and they say, oh, yeah, this this place is 3,000 years old or this is 1,500 right. years old, I go, wow. <laughs> Mind-boggling. So I feel fortunate to have... Houses on my street that pre- predate the revolution that are, you know, uh, built in the early 1700s. So uh, it's well, uh, obviously out of fairly good materials, I might add. Yes, indeed, it's all red <laughs> brick. So uh, um, we have pretty strict standards here in Philly about uh, uh, maintaining those historical structures. So unlike yeah. our big brother New York, where they tend to just knock that stuff down and put a big skyscraper in its place, we try to we try to have it hang around for a bit here. Must um, also mean that you don't have a lot in the way of natural disasters as well. Uh, not typically. We do have flooding in different areas, but uh, Philadelphia itself being inland uh, and being having access to an inland waterway that's relatively stable, which is the Delaware River, um, we don't typically have a lot of natural disasters. The yeah. worst things that probably happen here is a good nor'easter that will blow up the coast in the wintertime and... Mm. Uh, that's about it. That's great. And so um, no great urge to uh, relocate to Redmond? or uh, They've been trying to get me to do that for, a, for an awful long time, and <laughs> I'll, I'll say the diplomatic thing, and Redmond, Redmond's a lovely place to visit. <laughs> okay. But uh, not sure I would want to live there. That's great. The yeah. uh, Oh, well, next back on um, the new data types, I suppose the, one of the next ones is probably sparse columns. Yeah, sure. So um, the way I like to talk about sparse columns or column sets um, is along the lines of uh, kind of their their utility for uh, data structures that were never intended to be worked with by a human. Um, so everybody's familiar with uh, SharePoint and uh, SharePoint, you know, being our major portal product at Microsoft, you know, persists. Um, a lot of data in SQL Server, all of its data. It uses SQL yeah. Server as its data store. And um, most of the data structures that SharePoint creates are not man-made data structures. They are uh, data structures that are generated by the result of the, the portal software. Um, mm. And they can com- have an ungodly number of columns in them. And they ran into our column limitation pretty quickly uh, in SharePoint. So they had to come up with their own uh, kind of uh, storage engine over top of a storage engine um, to basically span rows and split rows um, in, into the database. And anybody that has ever tried to work with SharePoint data directly out of SQL Server will know that those data structures were never intended to be oh, directly no. manipulated. Yeah. I, right? I, ha- I haven't personally done so, but I have heard the comments. <laughs> yep. So, 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 again, kids, don't do this yourselves, right? Mm. You should be going through SharePoint's APIs to manipulate SharePoint data, right? Yeah. Um, but anyway, the, the bottom line is that that type of data structure is not that uncommon um, in software design um, for you know machine-generated data structures, uh, for engineering and scientific applications. Uh, not all data structures were intended to be used by a human being. Yeah. And so they could have a tremendously large number of columns, and most likely m- much of the data will be null. You know, for a particular yeah. column, you might only see a value, 
you know, uh, you know, two or three percent of the time. Yeah. Um, and in the existing storage engine in SQL Server 2005, we would, you know, allocate some storage for that for all those all those null values. Yeah. Um, with uh, sparse columns or column sets, we've added the capability to have just an ungodly number of columns. Um, the, the theoretical maximum is escaping me right now, but it's very large. I heard numbers uh, like a hundred thousand. <laughs> yes, yes, it's it's a ridicu- ridiculously large number of columns, um, and uh, we deal with those as a column set, and um, we intend them. You know, we assume that they are sparse. So we don't allocate storage for anything until there's actually a value somewhere, and and then we'll actually you know write 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 out that value. But we don't waste a bunch of space on you know millions and millions of null values uh, that uh, that really never needed to get stored in the first place. Yeah. Um, so that's a very very handy um, addition to your arsenal when dealing with uh, you know complex data structures. I think also the uh, the way the XML related way that uh, for reading and writing them is important as well. Yes, yes. The uh, the access model uh, for working with uh, these column sets uh, is you know needs to be somewhat different because of the large number of columns and because of the uh, different types of data manipulation that you need to do with them. So so we have you know, done some extensions to Transact SQL, and we, we do use, uh, indeed, XML to go in there and, and, and work with those columns because uh, that's just an efficient way of doing it. Yeah, I find if you if you do, uh, for example, select asterisk, uh, I'll select aster from table, the last thing you really want is 100,000 columns coming back. So Without when, a doubt. Yeah, with <laughs> so, yeah, it's important under, for the people to understand that you, you get the normal columns, but then you get a set, uh, one column uh, of XML that contains the other ones that happen to have values. So you don't right. end up with uh, yeah, a gigantically wide thing. with. Uh, and if you need to materialize that result set in a more standardized way, you can always do that by explicitly stating you know, yeah. the columns, and then, then you've got a real column in your result set, right? Yeah. Um, so in fact, look, that raises an interesting question. One of the things I... I endlessly have a discussion of in the trainer, uh, the SQL trainer news groups. Uh, I see a lot of people saying, look, the students uh, don't have an XML interest when they come in the door, and I get the feeling the trainers don't really see a strong personal XML interest. And and so they tend to be very light on wanting to cover much in the way of XML, but the, I'm endlessly trying to suggest that there's just more and more and more uses for it in the product every day. And uh, I absolutely agree. I'm, for most of our early adopter initiatives for SQL Server 2008, we're turning the crank one more time with all the XML capabilities in the product to get uh, people to take another look at it and understand how powerful and how important it is. And, and yeah. you know, the the fact that our implementation isn't just some bolt-on of, uh, you know, XML, but it's natively integrated into the query processor that we've built, you know, indexing, uh, specialized XML indexing capabilities, you know, for handling it. And um, there really are, I think, more and more applications that I'm seeing that are leveraging the type when people start to yeah. understand how powerful it is. Oh, I, th- I also say to them, don't you have an interest in 
uh, login triggers or uh, DDL triggers or event notifications or sure. you know, just the, just we there's use, so we many use places. so much in our own tools. Just at least having a basic familiarity with it is helpful. But you know, yeah. old habits die hard. Yeah, indeed. So, um, in, on an allied note, then filtered indexes. Yes. So uh, the idea behind filtered indexes is, you know, the age-old problem of uh, kind of a lopsided set of, heur- of uh, heuristics for uh, selectivity. So if I have a million rows in, in my table and 98% of those rows are the same value, I have little or no selectivity into that table. Um, uh, so what you can do is filter out some of those common values and just create your your index heuristics on 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 just the uh, the, the 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 values where there's some variability. Um, and yeah, I, I can see great benefit here. One one of the endless discussions I used to have uh, where I, I completely differed with the training materials uh, and a lot of the materials I saw published. There used to be an argument that said, look, things like bit columns, for example, they said these are it's pointless indexing them because they have no selectivity. Because, it, yeah, But every time I looked, the example was male versus female, where it was an even right. distribution. I mean, right. the reality I used to find in business uh, applications was it was uh, something like finalized and non-finalized, or finalized or not, and unfinalized were the ones I was looking for, and that might have been a fraction of a percent right. of Very the entire fraction. table. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. uh, so I used to Filtered say... Filtered indexes will help out a lot in those scenarios. And that's absolutely brilliant because yeah. uh, that's exactly it, is that I, I still wanted to build an index before because I wanted to find those few very, very fast. But now it means I could build an index with just those ones. Exactly. So that's a, another nice tool in the arsenal um, and not necessarily a, a programmability enhancement, but uh, one that would certainly affect performance for... Uh, for queries that we're dealing with, uh, uh, columns that were kind of lopsided like that. Yeah. No, that's excellent. I suppose the other really big one then, of course, is spatial. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I understand you've got some other talks coming up uh, with spatial, so we'll touch on it here and and give your... Uh, your uh, your future interview some room to do some more deeper discussion, <laughs> but... Uh, uh, similar to Hierarchy ID, we've also extended uh, the type system in SQL Server using the CLR to support um, some uh, spatial types. Um, and we've got basically two types. We've got uh, geometry and geography. Um, and geometry is a very standard two-dimensional planar kind of type, which corresponds to a lot of the existing uh, geospatial systems out there, you know, large number of them are, are 2D systems. Yeah, sort um, of flat Earth, where we've right, basically taken exactly. a round Earth map and we've flattened it out in some way, which yes, means it's exactly. distorted <laughs> by its nature. Yeah, so if you're dealing with a small surface area, it's not that bad, right? Mm. Uh, but if you're dealing with a large surface area, you start to lose some accuracy pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, GPS systems um, um, use more of a geodetic, uh, you know, uh, coordinate system uh, and set of calculations that um, account for the curvature of the Earth. So our geometry type, um, course, um, of course, corresponds with that and, um, you know, accounts for the curvature of the Earth yeah. um, in distance calculations and things, things like that. 
So when you talk about these things, I think the important thing to kind of set up at the beginning is that there isn't anything to be afraid of with these new types. Um, they're actually a lot easier to leverage than I think people would understand. Yeah. If you don't have experience with uh, with GIS applications, um, you know this is not about loading every map in the universe into your SQL Server database. As a matter yeah. of fact, I would encourage you not to do that. <laughs> Indeed, um, absolutely. Uh, so. Yeah, there are great mapping and rendering services out there on the internet that do everything but you know massage you and uh, you know slice yeah. your bread. Things like Virtual Earth, for example. Um, so Actually, well, you mentioned that, that, that one of the things often mentioned is integration with Virtual Earth and so on. Is is there any? I mean, apart from the fact that we have a Virtual Earth SDK where we can build uh, mashups and things using Virtual Earth, uh, yes. is there is there any other level of integration at all? Yes, the Virtual Earth integration is using the the Virtual Earth web services to build your applications. That's your integration, yeah. right? So yep. I always get a chuckle out of that one myself, right? Mm-hmm. There isn't like a lot of native like, oh, okay, we're calling virtual earth out of the engine to do things. There's nothing yep. like that, That's okay? Correct. Um, but what it, what, what it really does mean is that, you know, if you're passing data back and forth, if you're persisting geospatial data in SQL Server, you can use that to render things on top of virtual earth. That's a common thing where... You know, you actually want to visualize some of the spatial data that you've persisted in SQL Server. Do it in Virtual Earth. Yeah. You know, they have APIs for that, right? Um, there's suppose. a nice little sample out there for drawing polygons on maps um, yep. that uses Virtual Earth. And, you know, you draw the polygon and, 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 uh, and then you say generate insert statement. And yeah. it creates the insert uh, that you can use to insert that actual uh, polygon shape into a SQL Server geography type. Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, uh, the integration really is more to make sure that we support the same coordinate systems. So you want to make sure you're comparing apples to apples when you're working with geospatial data, and we support the same coordinate system that most popular GPS systems do, and that Virtual Earth does, obviously. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we're not, you know, on a completely different uh, uh, coordinate system. Um, and also uh, supporting um, this, the Open Geospatial Consortium's, uh, you know, well-known uh, types and, and, and methods for manipulating spatial data, and we've got support for that as well. Um, the so-called well-known text and well-known binary representation of spatial information, whether it's a point, a polygon, a line, um, etc. There are uh, standards that govern how that should be represented as a string and as a binary instance, and we support yeah. both of those. Yeah, in fact, I must have been doing work on the launch thing. One of the things that uh, I had to do a lot of that by hand, and I must admit, I, I found the the well-known text format actually fairly frustrating in that uh, they do things like they use spaces to delimit um, different parts of the, uh, like latitude and longitude and so on, rather than putting commas in there and so on. And Yeah, just yeah. the whole... Yes. yes, you're you're going the same approach as everyone else who wants to build their first demo, which is you're hand coding <laughs> that stuff, right? Yeah. You, you learn you learn fairly fairly quickly that you only want to do that once and you never yeah. want to do it again. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so that that leads me to the very next thing is that one of the big issues, of course, is getting data into SQL Server from various spots. Um, sure. And so we've got GML XML support. 
about in the market, most of the data seems to be in things like Esri shape files and so yes. on around the place. Do you know, is there yeah. anything happening to, to help make those sort of transitions easier? Do you know? Yeah, there's some third-party solutions that are available, um, and I, there, there's two that are very common that are doing a lot of integration work with SQL Server right now. One that is kind of a, uh, an S, a SQL Server integration services kind of add-in, yep. um, and another that's a full suite of kind of geospatial data manipulation tools, mm-hmm. um, sort of like a Swiss Army knife, if you will, for yep. kind of moving geospatial data around. Um, nothing in the box yet with SQL Server, so we're really counting a lot on our partners to do that. Okay. If you go up on my blog, uh, blogs.msdn.com slash rdoherty, I've got a geospatial post up there that references a few of those tools um, that uh, from our from our partners. Um, yeah. So, you know, again, in this this really, you know, just having SQL Server there supporting geospatial data isn't enough. Um, you don't want to build your own mapping engine. Go use a web service like Virtual Earth for that. Yeah. And you don't really want to be writing your own uh, data migration and, and uh, data uh, transformation tools for it either. There's some great third-party solutions for that. Yeah. And I suppose the last topic then is you need to be able to find the data quickly. So there's a lot of work on the indexing. Yes. So to be a real type in SQL Server, it's, it's not just about storage, right, because anybody can create a user-defined type. It's about yeah. integration into the query processor, and it's about indexing. So all the types that we've discussed today, uh, hierarchy ID, XML, and spatial, all have their own uh, indexing capabilities built right into the storage engine. So in the case of the spatial type, we have a um, kind of a multi-tiered grid-based uh, indexing strategy that gives you the ability to kind of fine-tune the selectivity of your geospatial searches based upon the surface area that you're dealing with. Um, and it also gives you the ability to have multiple indexes. So, for example, you don't have to create an index for the entire planet if you're only doing searches in Adelaide, right? Yeah. Um, so, uh, and or you could have one index to deal with all of Australia, but uh, to provide improved selectivity in Adelaide, you can create a second index that has a much smaller grid size um, uh, for Adelaide that um, will um, uh, create, you know, much improved selectivity for searches against that region, right? So um, they've they've engineered all of this stuff to work with um, our underlying B-tree storage structures, and we've added some tessellation options um, for tuning each level of the grid. Well, listen, that pretty much brings us up to time anyway. So I suppose the uh, the main other thing is just is there anywhere people will see you at conferences or things or any calls to action? Yes, yes. Um, check out my blog, blogs.msdn.com slash rdoherty, um, and also my colleague uh, Zach Owens' blog, blogs.msdn.com slash Owens. The two of us are... Uh, currently working on driving early adoption of SQL Server 2008 around the world through programs like the SQL Server 2008 Jumpstart program and the SQL Server Metro program. So uh, if you're participating in either of those, chances are you'll run into myself or Zach. Excellent. Come up and say hi, and, uh, and um, hopefully we'll get a chance to talk. And TechEd, perhaps? 
I will not be at TechEd. They're, uh. they're, TechEd is such a well-supported uh, event that they don't need me piling on as well. So uh, we'll likely be uh, traipsing around the world delivering depth uh, instructor-led training events associated with the Metro program while TechEd's going on. Excellent. Well, thank you so very much for your time today, Roger. Thanks a lot, Greg. Appreciate it. <laughs> That's great.